I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After more than 20 years, the brutal rape and murder of college student Angela Samota was finally solved. Why did it take police so long to find the killer? And what ultimately led to an arrest of a man who was never even one of the many suspects in this case? This is episode 31 the Angela Samoda and Sheila Waisaki story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Amy. How are you? Very well. How are you? Excited as always. I'm always excited when it's my turn to talk. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> and today's episode is really good. I know. I'm, su- I'm super interested. <laughs> Just by your opening, I'm like, all right. And I don't know the case, which is great. But before we get into the case, we have a few supporters to thank. Favorite part. Yes, we have Teresa from New Jersey. Thank you, fellow New Jersey gal. Yes, I guess you don't mind our accent. (laughs) (laughs) Want to say a big thank you to Emma Miles. Thank you so much, Emma. And thank you so much to Kenzie from Falmouth, Massachusetts. That's Cape Cod. Oh, it's beautiful there. And lastly, we'd like to thank Jennifer Thomas. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And if you would like to support the show, please leave us a review, tell your friends, or you could check our website or the show notes for links. Just want to say also thank you to our patrons and supporters. You have been so good to us, and it's the reason why we're able to do these extra episodes this month. You made it happen. 
We're really happy to do it, but it was definitely not something we could have done without your support and your help. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoy these extra episodes. Yes, thank you. And for you patrons, keep a lookout for our next AMA happy hour, which we'll be announcing very soon. Yes, can't wait to do our next happy hour. I was also thinking maybe we could cover a case of interest. So if you have any cases you'd love to talk about right now, there's some hot cases that people are asking about, the Lori Vallow, Scott Peterson decision. If you want to make that a focal point, you know, send us a message on Patreon and we'll try to uh, accommodate, you know, some of the things that you guys want to talk about. Absolutely. Megan, one more quick announcement. Where are we going in a few weeks? CrimeCon. <laughs> I was going to say nowhere. That's <laughs> no. Yeah, CrimeCon. We'll be showing up on Podcast Row for CrimeCon House Arrest, the virtual CrimeCon for 2020. And for people who've never been to CrimeCon, there are live Q&As with some of your favorite people in this field. Um, you know, we Keith Morrison, Aaron Moriarty, and lots of others. There's case discussions about all of your favorite cases, current cases right now. There's networking. There's chats with mystery guests. It's basically just an immersion of all things crime related. Even Podcast Row, which is where you can come meet us. That's right. Saturday, November 21st, Amy and I are going to be on Podcast Row, and we really look forward to meeting with some of you. So if this sounds like your thing, we have a promo code for 10% off. Just go to crimecon.com and use APPEAL2020 for 10% off the registration. That's A-P-P-E-A-L 2020 for 10% off the registration fee. And Megan, if people register by November 11th, they can receive a swag bag in time for their CrimeCon house arrest. Well, then we better register right now, Amy. Right. (laughs) So now I think we're ready for today's case. The reason I love this case is because we're not only discussing the victim, who I mentioned is Angie Samoda. We'll be calling her Angie Samoda. That's what friends and family knew her as. But we'll also be talking about a woman who would not give up on finding justice for her best friend, Sheila Waisaki. And when you hear about what Sheila's up to today, you'll be pretty impressed. So a female, another kind of female trailblazer. Exactly. Love it. How much we love these. So Angela Angie Marie Samoda was born on September 19th, 1964 in California. After graduating high school, Angie enrolled at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And there she studied computer science and electrical engineering. And Megan, we're talking about the 60s here. She was one of the only females in that program. Oh, I think I forgot how old this case was. Wow. How badass is that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very smart girl. It was here in college that she met Sheila Gibbons, who is now Sheila Waisaki. And they were just assigned randomly as roommates their freshman year. So Sheila and Angie were described as opposites. Sheila was described as very shy and she struggled academically. I believe she had dyslexia, whereas Angie was very social. She was actually the social chair of her sorority ZTA. Oh, wow. Okay. And she was studious. She was described as the life of the party, very friendly, smart. And as many said, she was quite gorgeous. The two became best friends. I heard an interview with Sheila and she mentioned that they both grew up without fathers and that bonded them and they they got pretty tight from that. Sheila didn't like Angie's boyfriend at the time. So apparently there was a little bit of a rift between the two of them. But eventually Angie broke up with him and the two girls became very close once again. Around her junior year, Angie had saved up enough money to move into her own off-campus apartment. And Sheila at that time had decided to stay in the dorms. But as I mentioned, they were still close friends. On the evening of October 12th, 1984, Angie and two of her friends, Russell Buchanan and Anita Kadala, they went out for a night of drinking and dancing, as you do in college, right? Angie did have a boyfriend at this time. His name was Ben McCall. He did not join them. He was actually a little bit older. He had to get up early the next morning. He was a construction manager. 
Angie was pretty mature for her age. She was, you know, only a junior. She lived in her own apartment and she was paying for it herself. She had an older boyfriend and she was on a really good path. The three friends went bar hopping for a bit. Um, By all accounts, they had a great time. Lots of drinking and dancing, but not excessive drinking to the point where anyone was overly intoxicated. Angie was described as going from table to table, talking to people. Remember, she was a social chair. She was just a bubbly person um, talking to everyone. Got it. After the night out, Angie drove her two friends home, first dropping off Russell at around 1 a.m. at his apartment. And he lived only a few minutes from her place. And then she dropped off her friend Anita. Anita was actually supposed to spend the night at Angie's house. And she ended up not sleeping there because Angie was getting up early to go to a football game. Remember that in college? How much fun? Oh, my gosh. I really just thought of that. It was fun. Then she decided to stop at her boyfriend's house to say goodnight. He lived pretty close by. So she just wanted to, you know, say goodnight to him and see him before she went to bed. She did not stay very long. And around 1.45 a.m., she ended up calling him and she said there was a man in her house. (gasps) And... Ben said she sounded like cryptic almost, like she was, he couldn't really understand. He was also disoriented because he had been sleeping. Uh, Apparently, she says that this man asked to use her phone and the bathroom. It's unclear if he was there when she got home or if he knocked and she let him in. It's okay. But reportedly, well, according to her boyfriend, she just said, stay on the phone with me. Talk to me. Okay. Then she said she would call him right back and she hung up. After not hearing right back from her, as you would expect, Ben got quite concerned and he jumped in his car and drove over to her condo and began knocking on her door. However, there was no response and the door was locked. So at this point, Ben is concerned. He actually had an early generation mobile phone. Remember, we're talking about the mid 80s. But Ben, because he's a construction manager, he had one of those like Zach Morris, even bigger. I was just going to say, the only person I knew who had one was Zach Morris. Yeah, but we're talking about even earlier. Zach Morris is 90s. This is 80s. Is that true? Okay. Yeah, but either way, he had one of these phones in his car. So he called information. Do you know something interesting, Megan? He didn't call 911. He called 411. Do you want to know why? Why? Well, 911 was not implemented as an emergency service until 1987 in Texas. You're kidding. Isn't Who that knew? so interesting? So the telephone industry agreed on 911 and as a universal emergency number in 1968. However, each state, state. implemented it and administered it at a different time. So he used his big mobile phone and he called 411, who then put him through to emergency services. Wow. Police officers arrived a little bit before 2.30 a.m. So you see the timeline's pretty quick here. Yeah, that was. Because she called him around 1.45 to say someone was in her home. Oh, oh my goodness. So we're, we're this is 45 minutes? 45 minutes. That's very quick. So 40, good. He responded quickly. That's good. Very quick. The, the police get to her home a little before 2.30 a.m. and very quickly discover her body, dead, bloody, naked on her bed. The autopsy revealed that she had been repeatedly raped and stabbed multiple times, actually dying from wounds to her heart, which was actually outside of her body when police arrived. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was brutal. Oh, that's so upsetting. You know, you can read some of the accounts by the officer who was one of the first on the scene was very young in her low 20s, like just new on the job. And she said this. As you could imagine, this was quite the shock for her. I imagine she had like post-traumatic stress disorder after that. Yeah. Um, Megan, who do you think was the first suspect? The boyfriend. Ben, right? Immediately, not surprisingly, police were suspicious of her boyfriend. But they could probably confirm pretty quickly with the phone records, too, that she called him. So that story. Exactly. That he answered a phone at his house. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, they immediately were like, okay, the boyfriend, the person who called to report, you know, that she wasn't here. 
But also, who else were they investigating? Who was the last person she was seen with? Russell. Yeah, I was going to say the guy she dropped off. So things were looking pretty good because there was a guy she was out with. They have a boyfriend and she also had an ex-boyfriend. Remember the ex-boyfriend that Sheila didn't like? Yes. He was very violent with Angie in the past and apparently like set fire to her clothes and threatened her with a knife. Oh, so, so there were, go to. you know, from the beginning, there were a couple of people. So from the autopsy, it was determined that Angie's attacker was a non-secretor. Basically, this just means that he did not have blood in his secretions, meaning his saliva and semen. This finding quickly ruled out Ben and the ex-boyfriend because they were both secretors. Russell, however, was a non-secretor, so police honed in on him. So let's talk a bit about Russell and his movements in the hours and days after Angie's murder. Okay, Russell is, uh, which one again? Russell He's the is, one. The, Russell was out with her that night. The, okay, the one he, she dropped off. Got yes. it. So Russell was a pretty new friend, somewhat of an acquaintance. They had recently met, I think at a networking event, because like I said, she had a good head on her shoulders. And mm. Russell was a little bit older and he was already working in the field as an architect. Oh, okay. And it's possible that they had some sort of um, interaction about networking. Okay. Russell says that he was dropped off by Angie, and he went right to bed. Unfortunately, as we know, when you live alone and you go to sleep, it's hard to produce an alibi. He also says he woke up early to attend a friend's wedding, and then from there, he boarded a plane to visit his family in the Houston area. Yeah, thinking, uh, where are you going so fast? I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to reserve my judgment okay. on this one for now. Good. He says he didn't even know about the murder until the police approached him a few days later and began questioning him. And remember, this is the mid-80s, so this is possible. Of course it is. There's no media. No internet, no cell phone. If you're at a wedding and then you go home to visit family, if you didn't watch the news or read the paper that weekend, and he was in Houston, not Dallas, so who knows if it would have been a story that went there anyway. So now that we know a little bit about who the police are suspecting, because that was their prime suspect at this point. Okay. Let's turn a little, let's turn to Sheila for a moment before we come back to Russell. Okay. Sheila was at home spending time with her family in Northern Texas when she received a phone call that she says changed her life. Though many of her college friends, including Angie, had plans to attend that football game that I mentioned on the morning of October 14th, 1984. Okay. So Sheila gets this phone call that morning. And it was one of Angie's sorority sisters and a mutual friend. And she says, Angie never made it to the game. There has been a terrible accident. Oh, boy. She immediately believed that it had been a car accident because that's usually what you think when someone says there has been an accident. Of course, you're not going to think of murder. Sheila said she was beyond shocked and beside herself when she heard that Angie had, in fact, been murdered. Oh, my gosh. As you would be. Absolutely. Sheila, of course, spoke to police. The police wanted to ask her questions about Angie and talk to her. The police even asked her to have dinner with Russell to see whether his story matched up. Oh, did they want her to record or just to... They did not, but it might just be because of the time. Maybe if it it were today. Got it. The thing I find interesting is they had sent Sheila to dinner with Russell, but they didn't like have police following them or anything. And they think he's the one who murdered her. So I was just going to say, sounds a little reckless. And she didn't know him at the time because he was a new friend of Angie's. So Sheila goes out to dinner and she reported being nervous because she thought, in fact, this was the person who murdered her best friend. Nothing much came out of that dinner. Russell's story seemed consistent with what he had already told the police. Okay, so no reason to suspect him after Sheila. She well, she leaves. Oh. No, they're still looking at him. No, I mean no reason. Sheila doesn't suspect anything. She no, thinks. Sheila still Sheila still thinks it's Russell because they oh. don't have any other idea who would have done this. Remember, they already cleared the other suspects, and no one would have thought this was a random act of violence. So they're looking at those close to her as they normally do. Okay, that makes sense. At this point, Russell stops cooperating. 
and he lawyers up. And I don't blame him. No, of course, this is what you should do at this point. Do you want to know who his lawyer was? I'll give you a hint. He was famous in Texas in the 80s. And as people said, if you got this guy, by God, you were guilty. Oh, um, Racehorse. Yes, Richard Racehorse Haynes. That's right. The Racehorse, I remember. Yes. I know him quite well. What case do you remember him from? Then I'll tell you the one that he sticks out for me. Okay. I know him from the Colin Davis case. Yes. Colin was rich and he had this tumultuous marriage with his wife Priscilla and he was accused of attempting to murder her the murder of her daughter and a couple of other people who were out with them that night so I think there was something like three murders he went on this famous trial some of the evidence against him was so strong and some of the explanations that were given for his behavior were so ridiculous that you would have thought he would have been convicted but he had the racehorse and he was acquitted and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but did you know that battered woman syndrome was established as a legal defense in Texas after he successfully defended Vicki Daniel? And I think that's so interesting. I didn't think I knew that. Yeah. Oh, no. Vicki Daniel? You know that case? I do, but it's more interesting to me because he actually established battered woman syndrome as a legal defense. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. As an attorney to wow. say that because of your case, this is a now an established legal defense. Sheila just retire after that. Right? So <laughs> Sheila and others felt if you were getting the racehorse, then you are in fact guilty. So this actually made him look worse in the eyes of some people. If you get a good lawyer, you're clearly guilty. Wow. <laughs> I know. At this point, the investigation's stalling. While the police suspected Russell, they never obtained any evidence, and therefore they couldn't charge him with the crime or move forward. As I mentioned, he ended up leaving the country to go to graduate school. And Sheila, while she watches Russell, he goes away and then he ends up getting married and life moves on. She was quite angry about this because she believed that he got away with murder. She ended up dropping out of school because it was just too hard for her. She said she was paranoid. She was scared. And she just tried to move on with her life. In 1986, she would get married. Now, Sheila Waisaki. And she did move to Tennessee. And she had two sons. So she says she was able to move on or try to move on. But she said Angie's murder still very much haunted her. I think if it was my best friend, it would haunt me forever. And I think I would feel like... Like, I'd feel like it had to do something. Absolutely. And that's exactly what Sheila does. In 2004, she said she was sitting alone in her home. She was reading passages for Bible study. She was a stay-at-home mom in a Bible study group. And she says she saw Angie appear to her in a vision. And she said it was after this moment that she knew she had to fight for justice for her friend. So what did she actually do? She begins calling the Dallas police and tries to put pressure on the Dallas police to reopen Angie's case. How long is this after? We're talking 20 years. Wow. Yep. And she says she called over 700 times (gasps) over the next few years. And she said she was not going to stop until she got answers. I heard something very funny in an interview with her. She said they nicknamed her PETA, pain in the ass. (laughs) Isn't that funny? (laughs) I'm like, what what does the animal rights organization have to do with this? She decided that she wasn't going to sit around and wait. She decided she was going to study to become a private investigator. Oh, I love this. Yes. She ended up taking and passing the exam and she became an active investigator. She believed that having the credentials would make the police take her more seriously and perhaps she could actually work with them to help move the case along. This is fantastic. So a break in Angie's case finally came in 2006 when the police tasked the now retired Detective Linda Crum. 
they were finally going to test the unknown DNA that was obtained from the crime scene. Wait, I didn't know there was unknown DNA. There was. There was blood, semen, and oh. samples from the fingernail. Of course Remember, I knew DNA that. DNA has come a long way. No, I, but yeah. you talked okay. about secretors yep. and non. I just, it went out yes. of my head. So thank you. Because we forget, because we take it for granted. Yes. Because now you have semen and, okay, DNA, that's it. Right. And that was 84, right? So Exactly. Okay. So we know DNA has come a long way since the 80s. It took over a year, which is upsetting, but at least it happened. In 2009, Detective Crum called Sheila to inform her that they found a match. And Sheila says she was shocked because she expected them to say it is Russell Buchanan. But clearly, based on what you've told me, I'm going to expect <laughs> exactly. that it was not him. In fact, the DNA was a perfect match to Donald Bess. He was a convicted rapist who was out on parole when he sexually assaulted and murdered Angie in 1984. You're and kidding. I'll tell you a lot more about him, but you want to hear just a little tidbit about what a gem this guy is? Oh, sure. He refused, apparently, to talk to any female police or detective because he said that all women are bitches. Um, all right. That might illustrate something for us about him. We can actually look at that and, and even look a little bit deeper. Uh, what is that? We, he's a serial rapist, we, we would say. I would say so, yes. Right? He, To my knowledge, though, he didn't have an, other murders, right? They only traced him to the Angela Simoto murder. Which could mean one of a couple things, right? It could mean that, A, they haven't found the other cases yet. Or it could also mean that he was escalating from rape to murder, which happens in cases. So when I look at his patterns and then I also think about what he said, his attitude, it makes me think of the typology of rapists. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this, but there was a seminal piece done by a psychologist. He was a prison psychologist, Nicholas Groth. And he published a piece on men who rape and he had delineated a couple of typologies. And you know, there were other researchers who came in and worked with him to kind of figure out where men fall. Now, why do we care? I mean, someone might say, oh, a man who rapes is a man who rapes. Well, it's kind of like how we care about what type of sex offender you have, because you know what risk they're going to pose. You know which populations they're harmed to. You also know which ones can possibly be deterred. Mm -hmm. With Bess, you know, if you look at the typologies, just so you know, there's the power rapist. The power rapist um, or the power reassurance rapist is someone who's insecure and lacks confidence. And so he or she will rape as a way to restore that confidence and to kind of like deal with these feelings of inadequacy. Is but it, Sorry, is so, it about control as well or is that a separate one? It's all a form of control. Mm -hmm. But in this one, they're raping, believe it or not, to feel some type of intimacy. To mm -hmm. It's almost like establishing a relationship, which means they're also very apologetic afterwards. So you can maybe see how someone in, in that kind of rapist might be more deterrable. There's also a power assertive rapist. So yes, this is all about power and control. And they have the same feelings of inadequacy, but they use rape to like validate themselves more in terms of it's like restoring the control or restoring their adequacy, kind of a way to validate their masculinity. Now, that's a little bit different than the anger rapist. And here's where I think we're talking about Donald Bess. Mm -hmm. I think he's coming into this category. Specifically, there's one called the anger retaliatory rapist. And this is a guy, usually a man, who is raping women or sexually assaulting women to get even with women they feel have wronged them. They will use force and brutality to degrade their victims. 
Sex is their weapon to hurt them. And that sounds like Donald best because obviously he has a hatred towards women. So I th- that's what I thought of with him. I'm thinking he is that kind of rapist. But then I think he escalates even further into the anger excitation rapist. And what that is, is the intent is to torture and kill for sexual gratification because maybe that's what he craves and desires. That might be a step too far uh, in looking or in talking about Donald Best and the kind of serial offender he was. He definitely falls in for me, the anger retaliatory rapist. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, having him caught, we have no idea how long his c- criminal career would have gone on because we know that for people like this, they can go on for, you know, years. He was caught a little bit later, so he was probably rounding out the end. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there might be other victims that we don't know about. Now, you're going to get angry about this, but Ugh. Donald Best was charged with a capital murder in the death of Angie Samoda. Sheila and her eldest son drove all the way from Nashville to Dallas to attend the trial. Sheila said Donald was a, quote, beast of a human and that she literally could not breathe when he walked in the courtroom. Oh, boy. Donald's lawyers tried to blame Angie by trashing her character. Oh, of course. Let me guess. They tried to paint her as a loose type of girl. (laughs) They said she was a tease. They talked about what she was wearing that night. Oh, of course they did. Can you believe that? I can believe that, actually. Yeah, but we're talking about, we're not talking about the 80s. We're talking about the 2000s here and the mid-2000s. And they're still doing this shit. You know, you're right. I I do find it hard to believe, given the time period. I was still thinking earlier. disgusting. Yep. Not surprisingly, the jury deliberated for less than an hour and came back with the guilty verdict. And he was convicted for her murder and he's sentenced to die. Oh, okay. Yes. Donald Best remains on death row, but he does not currently have an execution date. But I can tell you that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals recently upheld his death sentence. Oh, okay, good. So you would probably say end of the episode? No. No. Luckily, there is justice for Angie. Now I want to talk a little bit about what Sheila Waisaki has been up to. Oh, yeah. Once the case was resolved, Sheila says she planned to retire from her work as a PI. Because, again, she became a PI to help in Angela's case. And she felt like she did what she could. But she says she could not ignore people's call for help in solving cases. I also want to mention she contacted Russell to apologize to him for suspecting him for all those years. And Russell's such a great guy. He said he was actually grateful for Sheila because now his name could be cleared. Oh, wow. Two great humans. And he's a pretty famous architect. Oh, okay. So he's doing okay. Oh, good. I'm glad. So Sheila describes herself not only as a PI. She does have her own PI firm. It's called Without Warning Investigation. And she only takes a few cases a year. She'll only take murder cases and cold cases. But she also considers herself a victim's advocate. Oh, that makes sense. Yep. And in 2018, she launched the podcast without warning. Oh, get out. (laughs) It just clicked for me. Sheila's podcast without warning, I believe, is a few seasons in. But the first case she took a look at was a case of Lauren Agee. I know that name, but I'm just I know the name. Okay, let me tell tell you a little bit about it. Okay. In 2015... Lauren went on a camping trip. This is in Tennessee with her friend, her friend's boyfriend and her boyfriend's friend. Not sure if it was a setup, but it was the four of them. Okay. Her friends say they woke up and Lauren was gone. Hours later, fishermen found her body in a nearby cove. The sheriff's department quickly ruled her death an accident, saying that it is likely that she fell to her death. It was a camping trip, but instead of sleeping in tents, they were sleeping in a hammock. They were sleeping in a hammock that was apparently close to a cliff. Oh, I know it now. So as I said, the sheriff's department ruled her death an accident, saying that she likely fell to her death. However, the coroner's report shows signs of blunt force trauma and possible drowning. 
Her family strongly believes that her death was not accidental. And because of that, they contacted Sheila. Oh, I love it. I also want to mention that Lauren's mother filed a $10 million wrongful death lawsuit against the three people who went camping with Lauren. So that was her friend Hannah Palmer, Palmer's boyfriend Aaron Lilly, and his friend Chris Stout. Wait, so the mom just believed that one of them murdered her? Or she believes that they know more than they're saying. She's trying to force information out, like depositions, stuff like that, maybe? Exactly. So a judge ruled that there's not enough evidence for the wrongful death suit to move forward with the friend Hannah Palmer. But the lawsuits against Aaron Lilly and Chris Stout are still pending. I wonder why. I mean, is that just because they're male and they think, well, she was a female and not involved? And It it's... could be. Uh, I think some of it has to do with, they say the boys were acting suspicious and, who, you know, you okay. know how those things go. Okay. And by the way, I don't know if there yeah. anyone has yeah, yeah. involvement. Sheila has been working with the family, I believe, since 2016. And Sheila, along with many others, believe that Lauren fell into the gully and then someone fell on top of her, which would explain the blood force trauma to the back of Lauren's head and her other injuries. I don't understand what you mean. What do you mean some if she fell into a gully and someone fell on top of her? I don't get it. I think they're trying to say that there may have been an altercation and oh. perhaps there there was an eyewitness who came forward who said that he saw a male who matched the description of Chris Stout in the water like out of breath or, you know, something that I guess the theory would be that Lauren and Chris maybe had an altercation and then he pushed her. Or they, either way, it does seem a little shady that the friends, they did not call the police to report their friend missing, but they always said they had nothing to do with her death. They woke up and her shoes, her cell phone, her wallet, everything was there. Hannah was apparently concerned. And the two boys said she probably just went to the festival because they were there. They were there for like a wakeboarding festival. She went to the festival without her shoes. I mean, it sounds it's a yeah. little strange to me, but OK, yeah. it's possible. You're right. She's yeah. when I go camping, I bring a couple pairs yeah. of shoes. Maybe I just went. All right. So after working with Sheila, you know, Sheila and the family, they've been talking to many people. They gathered some interesting information. One of the suspects was on probation for domestic violence at the time of Lauren's death. One of the other suspects had gotten into an altercation with a female the night before. I'm not sure any of this leads us to any sort of conclusion. I do want to mention, though, that one of the first police officers to respond to the scene, he said from the beginning that he did not agree with the findings of the investigation. So he believed that it wasn't an accident. He thinks there's more to the story. Do you know what the actual cause of death was? Like, was it drowning? Was it blunt they said, force? What? They said blunt force trauma and possible drowning. So I'm okay. assuming the cause of death would be the blunt force trauma. And maybe they believe she drowned as a result. You might not know this, but I'm just curious. Do you know how close? Because I remember the case. Do you know how close the hammock was to the edge of this? Cliff? It was pretty close. You could see pictures online. I don't know why they would put it where they put I, I was it. just thinking the same yeah. thing. I mean, I have I, without knowing the case at all, if you're telling me it's close to the cliff, like I'm sometimes disoriented at night and I don't know if they were drinking or... Well, they were. They were heavily drinking. I mean, I think if I had to say, I would say it was accidental and the other people got scared. And so uh, they, they lied a little bit because they felt like they maybe had something to do with it. Partly they're, they're or, furnishing her with alcohol too. There's they also reports that some reports say that there were bite marks on her breasts and signs of strangulation. But other reports say that's not true. So there is one of those cases where there, you see conflicting reports from medical examiners. Sheila believes after investigating it so that it was an accident. Sheila does not believe it was an accident. Oh, Sheila does not. OK. What's interesting about Sheila is she relies heavily on media coverage and crowdsourcing to help in her investigation. Uh -huh. She also discusses the importance of victimology, which is the psychological profile of the victim. Yeah, we know in our field as criminologists mm -hmm. that victimology you know, sometimes it's confused with blaming the victim, but yep. it's really not. It's really explaining. It's really trying to figure out the characteristics that might have 
led to a situation mm-hmm. or made someone more inclined yeah. to become a victim. It's just part of the assessment. People will confuse victim blaming with understanding the role that victims' lifestyles or, or habits or anything can play in their victimization. And I understand why, because we know that there has been a history of rape myths. Yes. And this reminds me when I teach victimology to my students, we talk about victim precipitation theory. So active precipitation is when somebody is victimized because they provoked the attacker in some okay. way, whether it be name calling, fighting in some way, they did something actively to provoke the fate that came to them. Passive is when son- someone unknowingly possesses a characteristic that sets off their attacker. So hate crimes fall under that. But a lot of times, There's a really thin line because people, some of my students would actually say, so if a woman dresses in a certain way and she gets raped, would that be passive precipitation? Oh, that's... I say it will not, but I think it's a good question because it's a blurry line. It's a good question. And it's one of those rape myths that have historically been perpetrated in the media that lead people to hold these beliefs. And some of those rape myths that we've heard, and I did a brief study on this, are the idea, uh, Mm -hmm. she dressed a certain way. She asked for it. She liked it. She was He's not, drunk he, by herself at She night. was drunk by herself. He's yeah. not the type of guy who would do that. Exactly. Uh, you remember the Amet case that we covered? Absolutely. There were tons of rape myths. And that applied also um, with Angela Simoto, right? Uh, they were going to apply some of those. It's important for us to separate the myths from actual theories that look to understand victimization. Remember, although it was in the 80s, Donald Bess's trial was not till the 2000s, and they were still bringing up Angela Simoda's what she was wearing and how she was acting. That surprises me and doesn't surprise me. When I did the study on rape myths that I looked at, my finding was that the media wasn't necessarily directly positing these myths anymore, like mm-hmm. she asked for it, but indirectly, their yeah. language still implied the same thing. Yep, by just mentioning it when it's not relevant. So I just want to be clear. I think we should just be clear about the difference between understanding where victim blaming emerged from, but now knowing that we can study victimization without necessarily victim blaming. Yes, and I agree. I hate when people say victimology is blaming the victim. It's hard to understand a crime without understanding the victim and everything you can about that victim. Right. So what Sheila does is she says she tries to find out everything she can about the person. She wants to know, you know, what their friends know, what their parents, she values talking to people. Okay. She also takes things a step further and does psychological profiles of witnesses and suspects as well. That's great. Yep. Because I heard her talking. She said, in order to talk to suspects and witnesses, you need to know how to approach them. And you cannot get strong information unless you know who they are and where they come from. This is brilliant. You, every a good police officer in an interrogation will approach, uh, I'm sorry, good police officer in an interrogation will approach suspects differently. Um, maybe one of them is going to be your friend. Maybe one yep. of them needs, you know, an authority figure. Exactly. So bad this cop, like, you're going to be bad cop, you're going to be good cop. Psychology right? is, is great. This is great. One interesting quote that I heard Sheila say, she said, quote, I have more power as a podcaster than I do as a private investigator. Totally agree. I have more legal protections as a podcaster than as a private investigator. Interesting, but I can see it. I commend her and I love it. And I'm going to listen to her podcast. Second of all, it's not a question about Sheila because I understand everything. But I do have a question about the man who was convicted of murdering Angie, Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Bess. Um, You said he had uh, he was on parole. Mm -hmm. So we know he's got a history. Do you know what his history was with convictions or? uh, Yeah. So at the time when he murdered Angie Samoda, he was on parole for an aggravated rape and an aggravated kidnapping. 
And those crimes were committed in 1977. So we're talking about only seven years later. And so I had a feeling this was going to be the case. And this was definitely a problem, I think, in earlier sentencing. Now, I know the pendulum is swung and we also tend to over-incarcerate, but I knew it. I knew he was going to have this. He's got sexual assault and kidnapping. And the time between those two is seven years, which means he probably got out before then. Do you want to know what his sentence was for those crimes? It's going to be something like 25 years. 25 years. I knew it. So yeah, we're talking about someone who got out a little too soon, I'd say. We know he got out too soon, but I also think parole at seven years for a 25-year sentence for a violent crime like this is an inappropriate use of parole. And whether or not I think that parole is, uh, you know, I was a parole officer, so mm-hmm. I'm glad that practices have changed. I may not agree with all of them, but that was totally inappropriate. And again, another case where these crimes could be prevented if this man was incarcerated long enough and if he might have aged. Yeah. I doubt he would have aged out of crime because he seems like a predator, but you never know what might yeah. have happened. Donald Best clearly got parole too early. I think that we're both going to agree with that. Correct, Amy? Absolutely. But I also want to bring up one other point. One thought I had here is that, well, it relates to habitual offender laws, which is the idea that we want to install mandatory sentences for repeat offenders. And the most common one that you probably comes to mind that you probably teach about is three strikes law. Mm -hmm. The issue with three strikes laws, if you remember, Megan, when they were first implemented, they went a little too far. That was the problem. So three strikes laws, it emerged first in Washington, but the state you're really going to remember is California because of the Polly Class case. And Polly Class was abducted, a small child abducted, raped and murdered by Richard Allen Davis, a violent felon with a long history of assaults and kidnapping. And so Polly Class, her parents, Mark Class, pushed for this. And the idea is that three strikes and you're out. It's supposed to be for three violent felonies. However, the problem has become that states are using it differently. Some are using uh, a third strike as, you know, a theft or a misdemeanor. Some aren't using violent felonies. Some are using, you know, nonviolent. So three strikes has become something that it was never intended to be. And for that reason, I will say both prosecutors and defense attorneys will avoid using it. I don't know if you remember one of the famous cases of a man who stole a pack of gum and was sentenced to life without parole because he had two violent offenses before that. So I think I think once you implement these new policies and then things like that happen, that's when you start realizing. The DVD stolen, the golf clubs. These were, most of us will agree that this was an incorrect use. However, that being said, and I'm usually anti-three strikes laws, Mm -hmm. I heard this case and I thought Donald Bess is the person for whom we want three strikes laws. He's the dangerous criminal career offender. And he escalated. He did escalate. So had he not been released earlier, had he been sentenced under some type of habitual offender law, I think that we would have had a lot of, you know, crimes Mm. averted here. So I know you don't favor three strikes laws. I usually don't either. In this case, I would have had to say he would have been a perfect candidate. And that also reminds me, I wanted to bring up Remember at the beginning, they were looking at those closest to Angie? Yes. Because when we have a violent crime, you always, so they looked at the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, the guy friend, and it turns out that it was a stranger. They think that Donald Best was at one of the bars and possibly saw her. She caught his eye and he followed her home. But okay, so it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what we normally see in violent crimes, does it? When you had said that we we were not sure how he got into her house, what I thought was a push in. He probably like yeah, exactly. got, got behind her and, and pushed her in. Yeah, or he followed like, her home. Yeah. Or somehow, you know, somehow kind of forced it, but tried to enter under the guise of I just need help or whatnot. And she seems like a smart girl. And although it was the 80s, there was still stranger danger. And I yeah. don't think a young woman at 
two in the morning would have allowed a strain. And he was a big guy. I think he was like 300 pounds or something. I don't think she would have said, yeah, come use my phone or come use my bathroom. I agree that I think that he probably intimidated her and yeah. gave her no choice, which is why she called her boyfriend because she thought at least she could be on with someone. I mean, that was so smart of her. I am, I'm I'm sad that it didn't save her life, but because yes. yeah. in cases like this, that that air of suspicion is enough to be life ruining. So also sometimes police have tunnel vision. And I wonder in this case, they were so focused on Russell. I wonder they probably didn't even look into people who were on parole for sex offenses in the area, because if they did, I wonder if they would have come across Donald. It does happen. Um, hopefully in this case, that's not what happened. And it was yeah. just, you know, the DNA wasn't available. But yeah. I'm glad that Angie's case was uh, I'm glad that Angie's case was solved. I had no idea about this. I really commend Sheila. I can't wait to listen to the podcast. Yes. And Amy, I really thank you for bringing this one to me. And now that we finished today's episode, we'd like to get to a question from one of our supporters. I love this question from Mackenzie. And I think, Megan, you'll see once you hear it that I'm probably going to take the lead on this one. Okay. You can always jump in. Go for it. The question is, I would like to get involved in the intersection between psychology, mental health, and crime slash forensics. I've always had an interest in crime and psychology, and I would like to combine the two. However, I'm struggling to figure out what type of educational program to pursue. And she wants to know the difference between these programs, especially when it comes to careers post-graduation, and if it would be more important to enter into a PhD program rather than a master's program. So first of all, we both went to John Jay, and I think we can both say it was an amazing experience. And if you have that opportunity, I would take it. Megan, would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So we differ a bit. My undergrad degree was in criminal justice and psychology. And then my master's was in forensic psychology. Megan, you were, what were you again? Criminal justice. Criminal justice master. So that's why I said I'm a little more positioned to answer this question because I too was very interested in the intersection between psychology and the law. I think first of all, you need to decide, are you interested in the clinical or the experimental side of forensic psychology? So I got my master's in forensic psychology and I was going to get my PhD in forensic psychology. And if I had done that, it would have been either a clinical track, which pretty much prepares you to be a psychologist to people that are either incarcerated or upon reentry. At first, that's what I thought I wanted to do. I wanted to be a mental health counselor for individuals who were specifically on death row. However, I started doing research and then I realized the importance of the experimental track. The experimental track prepares you to either be maybe a jury consultant. If you do jury decision making, you could be an expert witness um, for issues such as eyewitness testimony, false confessions, you know, any areas that are relevant to, you know, where the law and psychology intersect. Can't you also be an academic on that end as well? Well, absolutely. If you yeah. get a PhD, well, first of all, if you're a PhD, right. you can be most people that get a PhD PhD do pursue academia. Right. Of course, I have a lot of colleagues and classmates, as I'm sure you do, Megan, that took more of the policy route. Yes. So people usually either go into academia where they teach at a university and do research and write. Other people go into more policy work where you work for like a research think tank, such as like the Vera Institute of Justice is Mm. a big one. The Brennan Center for Justice. Right. Urban. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. So I think first you need to decide if you're interested in doing direct care, meaning working one-on-one with clients, or if you're interested in more of the policy level, such as me and Megan, the route we went separately, but we both ended up in the same place. I was interested in forensic psychology, but on the research side, which is why instead of going for my PhD in forensic psychology, I pivoted to criminal justice because it wasn't as specialized. And I was interested in research and I was interested in making a change on the policy level. 
which as an academic, that's, you know, that's what we do through our research and our writing and our teaching. Um, to tell you the truth, I can keep going. Um, feel free to email me because this is like totally my cup of tea and my area. Feel free to email me. You have my email, amy at womenincrimepodcast.com. And I would love to chat with you further about this. Part of what we do as professors is advising students on exactly this type of question. So I'm happy to chat with you about this. So seriously, take me up on it. Megan, do you have anything to add now that I just didn't shut up? Not at all. Yours was perfect. Beautifully said, Amy. Good advice. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include BBC, The Washington Post, Without Warning Podcast, and Criminal Podcast. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.